Hey everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome to my weekly podcast, The House List. Yes, you're on The House List. I just marked your name off with a big freaking marker. I see you have a plus one. Um, is that person here with you right now? Oh no, they're they're coming later. Oh, why don't you just give me their name and I can write it down over here and then they can just tell me. Oh, I'm on the house list when they arrive later. And they'll be escorted to the area in which we've uh, sanctioned off for you. Um, and then they too, just like you, and many others like you, uh, can enjoy this episode that I put together for you. If this is your first time uh, tuning in, I guess, if you will, uh, Yes, my name is Peter Augustin, and this is my weekly podcast called The House List. It's a music industry, you know, for a lack of a better word, um, based conversation, conversational uh, podcast. There you go. And my my guest uh, today is a very special one. Uh, She's a great friend of mine, an old friend of mine that I've known for a long time and I've worked with many, many times, Michelle Cable. Michelle Cable of Panache, of Panache Booking, um, of Panache Magazine. If some of you know her from back then, then you'll be excited to know that I've decided to make uh, our our conversation into a two-part episode. So I'm going to close out 2016 and this uh, season of The House List with uh, a great conversation with Michelle Cable that went like three hours plus. It was so good and detailed that um, I'm going to also start the new year off, 2017, in a premiere of the all-new season of The House List with a continuation of my conversation with Michelle Cable. So um, I'm pretty excited about that. I wasn't anticipating it to go long. So it was actually done over the course of two days because we just had a lot to talk about. We've worked together on a lot. I was a booking agent at Panache Booking for, um, I don't know, three or four years. I, I helped write and distribute Panache Magazine, which was the fanzine music sort of art alternative like zine that the booking agency was birthed from um, back in Humboldt County California in Northern California in Eureka Arcata Fortuna etc so since we Michelle and I go so far back um, we just spent the first hour really talking about um, her uh, growing up, moving to California, the in the origin of, of Panache Magazine and, and the sh- the local shows in Humboldt County that existed to support the magazine, basically like benefit shows and uh, magazine release parties. Um, I met Michelle, I think, when she was 16. So she had started it back then when she was in high school, working at the mall at Orange Julius. And... Um, editing and doing the whole layout and uh and like on this big ass primitive computer you know i mean this was 
not even that long ago, but I mean, I guess it was in a way. It was probably, I think I met her in 2000 or 2001 for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, we've been friends and working together ever since and collaborated in a lot of ways. So if you are a fan or familiar or even work with Michelle, I think you're really going to dig this conversation that we had. If you may be unfamiliar with her, I'll kind of break it down a little bit. So Michelle runs and owns, operates a booking agency, which is now um, based in Los Angeles. It started in uh, in basically Humboldt County, Northern California, shifted to San Francisco, then you know expanded to New York, with, where it kind of blew up in a way, if you will, I guess for lack of a better term. <clears throat> uh, that's when I was working there, along with uh, Jesse Hodges and and a slew of other people and lots of interns and stuff. And then just recently, she shut uh, down the New York office and is full time in LA. So if you know artists like Mac DeMarco, which I'm, at this point in time, I think a lot of people probably do, uh, Ty Seagal, <clears throat> uh, the OCs, Jonathan Tubin, who's a great uh, New York-based DJ, um, Michael Cronin, and uh, even some of the older um, wave of, of Panache bands like RTX and uh, I mean, a ton. And I don't want to sit here and just uh, toss a bunch of names at you, but um, I think that you will really appreciate this. It's really cool. It's a great perspective from like the preeminent booking agent of like, I guess, quote unquote, like indie bands, although that's like the most antiquated, ridiculous term at this point in time, but really like forged like a, uh, a great alternative to the larger corporate booking infrastructure. And I think influenced a lot of people along the way, as far as her level of taste, the bands that she worked with, the style of, of, um, show curation because uh, Michelle and Panache were uh, had a big impact at South by Southwest and CMJ and they did a, a boat cruise and uh, yeah just a gang of stuff so anyway I will probably even talk a little bit more about that in the intro of the next episode so with that being said again I appreciate you tuning in to my weekly podcast The House List this is the final episode of 2016. What a year it has been. Um, I'm exhausted, frankly, and a bit browbeaten, um, a little uh, concerned and depressed at the loss of so many great artists, but motivated and inspired to connect with more and more people now that more than ever. So... Um, again, I appreciate you guys tuning in. If this is your first time, you can uh, find us on iTunes. It's also available at SoundCloud and the Stitcher app. And hopefully in the new year, it'll be a little broader. But for now, it's if you can find it, you know, then I uh, all I ask is that you uh, send a link to a friend or, or, or tell a friend about it. It's not something where I'm part of any kind of big, you know, um, podcast podcast. Uh, network or some broad marketing uh reach here so really uh it's a word of mouth thing much like panache magazine was so if you dig it if you dig the conversations 
I try to intentionally make them about different kinds of people in music, so different genres, different kinds of uh, fields from publicists to hip hop artists, tour managers and show promoters, uh, you know, band managers, journalists, radio DJs and stuff. This is all like where we've kind of come from since uh, the beginning of September. So it's really just been around for a hot minute, but you know, um, we're going to keep it going. There's no doubt about it. You know what I'm saying? So I appreciate you. I want to send a strong shout out and thanks to CJ Stewart, who's edited and engineered all these episodes with me. Um, and to Dame Funk and the crew for allowing me to use um, this uh, track as our opening joint this year. So, yes, thank you again. If you're a subscriber to this, I genuinely appreciate it. And without further ado, here is the first part of my conversation with Michelle Cable of Panache Booking. Check it out. So you were born in Washington, D.C., right? Yes, I was born in Washington, D.C. So you D. grew up in D.C.? Until I was eight years old. Do you, what do you remember? What are your memories of living in D.C. like? Well, I remember snow and uh, seasons, but I was, I was pretty young when we moved across the country because I'm from a family of six people. And oh, really? Me, yeah, me and my three siblings and my parents moved across the country when I was eight years old in a station wagon. And do you remember that? I do remember that. Made the great migration west. Yeah. I remember that yeah. car trip in very specific detail. What time of year was that? Summer. It was, it was right before my birthday because I think I turned eight in um, that year that we moved. So, so it was in July. So you, where did, but you didn't end up in Eureka though, did you? Or We moved, across, so we drove across the country in a station wagon from D.C. to Humboldt County, but we didn't move to Eureka. I kind of spent a lot of time in Eureka as I got older, but we moved to a town called Fortuna in oh, California. Oh, wow. Okay, well, that's amazing because that's, well, that's how we know each other really. So is, is, is in, uh, in, like, you know, people associate Humboldt County without really knowing like any of the towns per se you know like and obviously there's you know there's there's it's a dream it's yeah, a, yeah yeah an emerald dream yeah many people. uh-huh and i didn't i don't think i really realized although now it's kind of coming back to me because it has been a while too but that um that you at first lived in fortuna right and yeah then, i lived in fortuna which is a very small more country town uh smaller than eureka or the two big things that happen in Fortuna are, are pretty much like the rodeo and uh, the daffodil show. <laughs> What's the, what is that? I don't remember the daffodil show. That's like you the flower show. I remember what a daffodil show is because unless you ended up going specifically to Fortuna for it. But yeah, there'd be a big flower show where they'd have like 300 different species of daffodils. Mm. And that was a big deal. And then there'd also yeah. be the rodeo, which would come to town. Or like, you know, I grew up in a town where there'd be parades and the big thing that weekend at the parade would be like, a cow patty toss, which is, I don't know if you know what that is. <laughs> is that just, just like a big pile of cow shit or it's, is that It's like... pretty much like a cow patty when a, when a cow shits, it, you know, kind of becomes like a pancake and they say, they collect these for this big event over the weekend in uh -huh. Fortuna and then locals see how throw they can far, see how far they can throw these patties like disc throwing in like, you know, the Olympics. Right. And, um, but they do it on the main street of town. And I just remember being like nine years old and watching 
pretty much like cow shit hit buildings, like the local banks and like shops. That was a big thing. Uh, a bunch of other stuff like penny scrambles and what's that? Penny scrambles was something I actually looked really for. I looked forward to as a kid, but that pretty much is as it sounds. That's Kids, just people throwing pennies on the ground. There would be roped off, a roped-off area, and they would collect pennies all year round. You'd go into like a local supermarket or like liquor store, grocery store, and there'd be a big jar collecting pennies for the penny scramble. And then they pretty much throw thousands and thousands of pennies out. But if there's a penny painted red or blue, it signifies a certain amount of money that you can get. So then they throw pennies mm. out, and kids are supposed to, you know, very greedy thing, actually, to think about now, that they're encouraging kids to, like, push other kids down and <laughs> grab pennies. And then if you get a colored penny, you actually win $5 or $10. And, and that was another big thing for kids locally in my town. And you Dang. Know, $5 meant a lot when you're 9 years old or 10 years old. Yeah. And buy a lot of candy how, what, $5 yeah so what how, how would you spend that in fortuna what would you what do you do in fortuna now i've been to fortuna i know i i mean but it's been a while and i know some people that still live there in fact i really like fortuna it's a beautiful little town if i remember correctly yeah i think it's town slogan is the friendly city <laughs> <laughs> uh with five dollars at 10 years old i probably bought candy and like pogs or or something yeah like along those lines so, but now I met you when, um, in... I was a little older. Yeah, but not really that much, maybe 10 years later, or, or no, it was, I met you, you were 16 when I met you. Yeah, I think I was 16 or 17 So when it was we met. like eight years later. Yeah. So, so eight six. years after you were flipping pogs in Fortuna, after the penny scramble, um, you were booking shows all of what 10 miles north in eureka right yeah i was booking shows in in eureka and then a little north of that in arcada but that was already high school for you like at... yeah pretty much when i was 15 i started a zine called panache and in eureka california in, in eureka yeah in eureka california you were going to eureka high school i was yeah so pretty much when i was i was living in fortuna going to school in fortuna but then we kind of decided that going to eureka was probably better suited because things at the schools we were in Fortuna. Like, I went to a school in Fortuna, a Christian school in Fortuna for a couple years where it was literally in a trailer and there were two girls in my class and, like, 18 boys or, like, 15 uh, boys. So it was a very yeah. small school. And right. like, But the, the I could get a better education in Eureka. So I ended up going to Eureka High, which was about a 15-minute, 20-minute drive from Fortuna. So my dad drove me every day back and forth when I started doing that in, um, in like, I think when I was like in fifth grade but anyway so I kind of started to get roots in Eureka even though I lived in Fortuna right and what and, people just for some context as far as geographically and in Humboldt in California rather is that all like the whole county of Humboldt and the towns that are sort of uh you know along the highway it's all along the 101 you yeah. know so you know when you, if you're living in LA which you live in LA now but like uh, or you know anyone that's traveling California knows that the 10 the highway 101 goes the, the whole length of the state you know um, and it's funny because you'll be driving around in LA but little you know all the way up in Fortuna and Eureka and Arcata you know that it's still the 101 so I mean sure but anyway I wanted to say that for some context you know yeah, and I think a lot of people think Northern California is San Francisco, but San Francisco is actually kind of a little more central California. Right. Yeah, Eureka, Fortuna, Arcata, Humboldt County is the true Northern California, but that's like five hours, five hour drive north of San Francisco. I mean, 
where I grew up is an hour, or where we lived is like an hour south of the Oregon border, hour and a half south. Right. And uh, but yeah, it's on the it's on the coastline of in the Highway 101 goes along the coastline, but it's a beautiful drive. It's just really out of the way if you decided to take the 101. Like people that go through Eureka. There's a specific reason they're probably traveling through. They're going out of their way. They're going to buy, you know, heroin, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kidding. Really? No, it's beautiful. It's it absolutely beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, it's one of the most beautiful places. The sequoias are so, like, majestic. You know, there's an amazing, you know, like, amazing beaches and, you know, rivers. And it's, 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 ab- it's absolutely gorgeous. And there's this kind of whole, like, mystique to it very there's like a twin peaks vibe to the whole area you know there's a lot of interesting music and art and culture coming out of there i mean there was when i mean still i think but definitely when i was when we both were living there right now i want to let's go back just a little bit to high school and stuff because that's basically when you started getting into that's when panache started as a zine and when and basically shortly after that when you started doing shows which is what many people obviously know you for is your shows um so like uh how did i mean not to be as uh, elementary as how did like the panache zine start but were you had you you had obviously gone to a couple of shows before you started that right like because you were how were you absorbing um you know pop culture and, and music and formulating your like tastes like in a place that's kind of out of the way like eureka and fortuna I would go to shows. I think I started going to shows when I was 14. And I would go to various shows at places like this seafood restaurant called The Vista. Or there was a restaurant or no bar called Hefe's that uh, Hefe from No Effects owned. Saw a a band called Turbo Negro there. And, you know, I went to a bunch of shows when I was 14, 15. I was lucky because my mom kind of didn't ask a lot of questions and seemed to be okay with She trusted me to go to all these venues and stuff because a lot of these places, you know, we're all ages, but definitely kind of wilder places to hang out. But I, I mean, I've always, I've always loved music and, you know, found different ways of discovering new stuff. But this is predating, like, people being, you know, really online. And so you find out about stuff through, like, you know, MTV or a lot of stuff I right. discovered was through, I don't know how many people remember this, but you used to be able to buy, like, one record on Columbia Records and then right. get, like, 12 other records for free. Yeah, it was like the CD club or yeah. something like that. So I, I would just find out about a lot of new stuff through that. But a lot of those bands obviously weren't going through Eureka. But so a lot of the things that I was listening to were, was more like punk or noisy were just bands that were traveling through town at these venues. But there was only a few different venues to go to. And so you kind of just ended up going there and then watching whatever random show was there. But, right. you know, I mean, I saw like At The Drive-In when I was like 15 there. And a lot of, a lot of shows. At The Vista? Really, at The Vista when I was like 15. Pre, before I started a zine. And, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of amazing bands went through there. But it was kind of like whatever came through you wanted to check out and you were always pretty pleasantly surprised. And when you're 15 and you're living in a town like Eureka, an isolated area, it doesn't take a lot to kind of, you know, like inspire you or like, you know, influence you in some other way because you're not exposed to that many different things there. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty... It's not sheltered per se because everyone had the TV, you know, but like it's way out of the way and it is kind of an insular community with a lot of sort of uh, weird anarchist type subculture, like trans. the transient subculture is definitely 
permeates there. That's what I noticed when I moved there. Um, so, what was the first show? That, what, so, so from there, what was the first show that you put on? Because that must have been right around the time that I first met you. Was shortly thereafter, I think. Yeah, I think the first show I put on. I mean, the the first issue of the magazine came out January 15th. All right, so I'm sorry. So the magazine really like yeah. predates any kind of shows. Yeah, let's, yeah so, I want to talk about that. So I started to do a zine pretty much out of boredom. You know, I, I, I always loved writing and got really into creative writing and that was something in, in school I always enjoyed. And, and so while I was in high school still, I kind of decided to start a zine and kind of combine two things that I love, writing and, and absorbing music. And decided to start a zine that was, you know, the first issue was like photocopied, 400 hand like collated copies, like, and you know, I'd go to the local copy place and do it myself and sit in a diner. You did 400 copies of the first ep- uh, issue of Panache. 400 copies. It was free. Mm. Uh, a lot of errors in that <laughs> that first issue, mm. uh, but. I put a local band on the cover called the Sin Men from Eureka, yes. who were amazing. But because I was doing this, the first issue of the zine, I decided to have a magazine zine release party. Right. And that was, I believe, the first show I booked. So the first show I booked mm. was like January 15th, 1998. Oh, you remember the date? Okay. <laughs> I don't cool. remember who played, but I remember the date. But I mean, it, might, it probably was a Sin Man because I mean, the idea with the magazine release parties were was that bands that I'd interviewed would either be from Eureka, Arcata, or Humboldt and play, or a band from the Bay Area or somewhere would come down and play the release party. That's almost 18 years ago. Can you believe that? I know. It's crazy. That's, that's amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, so 1998. So I moved to Humboldt, um, to Arcata to go to Humboldt State University in from Portland, Oregon, um, in 2000. Uh, or 2001, somewhere, I forgot when, because I lived in Portland for about two and a half years. So I moved there from New York. So not to get too off the top, but I'm trying, it's context. It's all about, I'm yeah. trying to have context for my listenership. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, so it had only been like a couple of years that you were doing shows, but but I do remember when I first met you that it was, the shows sort of facilitated the magazine. So there were release parties, both to get the magazine, but then there was these benefit shows too to help publish the magazine and would, you know, later distribute it as it kind of got, you know, you would slowly start distributing it outside of Humboldt. But it was for the first couple of years, it was really just like um, in Humboldt County, right? Yeah, the first few issues were definitely only Humboldt County based. And, and I think as I got into doing shows and realized that, you know, I could actually reach out to a band and bring them to the city that I lived in and have them play and then interview them. It, you know, I had created my own valuable resource to create, you know, information to cover. And so I started putting on a lot of shows after that first year of doing the magazine. And I think I, I started doing two shows a week or sometimes three wow. shows a week. And, you know, and through doing that, and it was all like, you know, very like, experimental you know I learned as I went I like learned as I went along it didn't you know I started doing shows at a lot of the places that I went to shows in the beginning but then found new venues to book but shows I at. remember too that a lot of the shows the venues that you were booking you couldn't go you couldn't you weren't not 21 yet so you couldn't even go you had to stay at the door and like work the door right 
Well, there, I mean, most of the places, like the Vista, they would let me hang out there and stuff. So I kind of chose places that would let me hang out. And I, I kind of tried to do as many LA just shows and 18 up shows as possible. But there definitely were like some bars that started to see that I was putting on all these shows that people were going to. And they would invite me to do shows there. But then because I was under 21, they would tell me that I couldn't actually go in and have to sit outside, which, you know, defeats the whole purpose of why I'm putting on shows. Right. Even though I have had several shows where I was working the door and I didn't even get to watch the performance because I was in the other room, you know, working the door. But right. that the whole experience was fun. And I, and I like being busy and, you know, and it's still true to this day where I, I like I like being active. So having a role in in running an event was interesting and, and, and kept me like, you know, like there, there was some sort of like uh, adrenaline from that. So even like, even though I sometimes wouldn't get to watch the whole show because I was working the door, you know, it was still fun. And I was like, you know, a teenager. So every, everything's like new. And then you kind of realize it's exciting when you realize you kind of have this power to create your own entertainment. And yeah, because you hadn't even been out of, you hadn't seen a show out of town really, right? Like I would go to, I mean, I would go to, San Francisco and okay. watch and, and go to shows. I mean, going to the city, you know, the city in quotes being San Francisco right. and, and watch shows at like the Fillmore and Warfield, which is really interesting now because I book a lot of shows there. Yeah. And, but go, going to places, I mean, I remember this funny, funny memory for me of going to see some band. I don't remember who it was. It might have been like Weezer or Radiohead or someone and like Cool Shaker. I don't know. One of these bands I saw at the Fillmore when I was like 16. And meeting some girl in the pit who had told me she'd been to 400 shows in her life. And I remember uh-huh. I remember thinking that was so cool and <laughs> aspiring to be just like her. And now I've been to, you know, who, who knows how many Four shows. Four million? Definitely, no, no, definitely not a million, but, but way over 400 shows. Thousands of shows. Put on thousands of shows. I mean, you probably book over 400 shows a year, I would, I would assume. Oh, definitely. I mean, and our agency books well over that. But it personally... Yeah, I mean, I think at certain South by Southwest, I put on over 110 shows, Right. you know, and so, but I, at that instance, when I was 16 or so, that seemed so cool to me that someone had in their lifetime been to that many musical performances. And I mean, it was just what I was all about. I mean, and I still am so, you know, like inspired by music, but back then, especially, I just, you know, loved going to shows and so putting on a show and being at a show for seven hours a night or eight hours a night was like the only thing I wanted to be doing. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was, it became a, such a um, part of that community in Humboldt too, you know, where it was the magazine and the shows that sort of existed around it created uh, a community of bands because you were so generous with your coverage of those bands, especially the Eureka bands too, which was, um, now we're talking about like late '90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. and stuff. So just for some context, because unless you like really like live in Humboldt or grew up there or something, then a lot of this would be pretty unfamiliar. Even the venues, you know, the Vista was what like a hundred capacity uh, room in the back of a seafood restaurant, right on this on the Humboldt Bay or something, right? Yeah, the Vista was a seafood restaurant that you know at night when the lights were on, you could tell that. I mean, it was like you know pretty there was like pink leather booths but at night you know it kind of became this debaucherous crazy like punk venue where i saw some insane stuff you know like i mean and being like 16 or 17 and going to shows and and not i didn't i didn't drink at these shows and then seeing everyone else get really wasted and i think when you live in a small town and you don't really have to 
or like you know like certain towns you there you know there's not that high of a bar of like things you have to do the next day you know it's not as like you know it's not as like crazy bustling active you know like there's definitely a level of people party hard and so yeah there's a great deal of pressure to do much of anything else you know yeah so I mean, especially when you're like 19 20 21 yeah and i was 16 hanging out with people who were like in their mid-20s and people that would definitely rage it didn't matter if it was monday or tuesday night which is really good when you're putting on shows monday night didn't matter if it was friday night or monday night people would still come out right. and uh but yeah i mean i there was a lot of venues where you know you were definitely exposed to some crazy behavior which kind of i think made it memorable for bands that would come through as well like i was i was just recounting a story recently to uh someone about watching this band i can't remember the name of the band but there was a woman in the band who was 80 or 90 years old who played bass who was like the Whoa. oldest oldest bassist like they she was like you know like a guitarist or bassist that was like a grandmother and the band had been on like jerry springer and they came through Eureka. There weren't that many people there, but the whole thing that people loved seeing this band about for was that the singer would vomit while he sang. <laughs> what was the band? I don't remember. I'll have to look okay. this up. But that was his thing. But he would he would drink orange soda and then vomit orange soda. And I remember being like seventeen because I would film every show I went to. So I'd be in the corner of the venue filming and watching all these like metal Hesher dudes watching the singer and then trying to like swallow the vomit as the owner of the club is like trying to catch the vomit in garbage bags where they didn't have a crazier job, you know, but that was like something kind of normal. I mean, it's so insane to think about now, but singer vomits, people are actually swallowing his vomit because it's some sort of like, you know, like experience, you know, like special, special, like, you know, like communion they're receiving or something. I don't know. I was saying in the very far corner, but then also there's like a 80 or 90 year old, you know, grandmother playing in the band, like so bizarre. But I saw so many bands like, you know, and that was like a big deal, like in, in Eureka. And I think I think one of the things too to talk about before, you know, we go into like shows, it's just that like most of the back, you no, know, if anyone wants to find a back issue of Panache, it's very hard. They're not really online. And none of them are online except for one issue. But while we were in Eureka, and you know this because you used to write for Panache Yeah, too, I contributed a lot to Panache. we might get to later. But a lot of the stuff we covered in the zine wasn't all music based. No, not at all. No. I mean, we interviewed uh, Jared Fogel from Subway. <laughs> right. Because he did a Subway tour and came through Eureka. That was big news. You interviewed him, didn't you? Uh, Chris, Collin, Chris Collin, a good friend of mine right. who lives in Eureka, did. Um, we covered a music festival that was a Christian music festival called Jesus in the Park, JIP, JIP Festival. <laughs> That's, you know, music related. But then, you know, we did stories where we interviewed the founder of the, uh, the creator of the Garbage Pail Kids. Right. Um, I think, believe Jim Pound, who, who lived in Humboldt. I could be wrong, but I think it's Jim Pound. And, uh, you know, we, we interviewed Corey Feldman. That was a big, he was on the cover. Yeah, Corey Feldman was on the cover. But, this you know, is like what year was that? Because this wasn't even that was in early two thousands. You know, I mean, we right. we but we interviewed. There was a lot of like not music related stuff, but things that were still significant cultural things that yeah. happened in Eureka. I interviewed um um like the local weatherman or something. Do you remember? It wasn't Joel Agnew. It was the other guy with like he was like a real buttoned up conservative sort of nerd with glasses. I don't. Yeah, I remember that you did something like that. I, the thing I remember about the when I think about you writing. Because you wrote for Panache. Yeah, yeah. I think the one the one story I remember that you did is you did a local review or you wrote a little 
piece on the zoo uh, about a, a chimpanzee that was at the zoo. And I think you wrote sort of almost like a love story about this, uh, this right. animal at the zoo that a lot of people got upset about for some reason. Well, yeah, because it was like a semi-fictional um, uh, story about this caged animal, you know. And I'd have to go back and read it, but I do remember because letters were sent to the to Panache magazine about it and people were upset. I think they were confused about what I was doing with the piece because it was, it was, um, I think both um, uh, pseudo semi-autobiographical as well as like, you know, it was like kind of experimental art piece too because it was somewhat from either the perspective of a lover of the, of the primate in the, in the zoo, but also there was something caged, a caged thing. It was, the shit was like so ahead of its time that of course it was going to upset people. They didn't know what they didn't know how to deal with that, you know. So anyway, but yeah, that was a great one. Yeah, <laughs> people in Eureka didn't know how to handle that at that time. But yeah, I mean, we we would do uh, bathroom reviews, restaurant reviews. Right. Yeah, a lot of a lot of got it got pretty weird. Panache personals. Um, yeah. People finding love. How many um, issues in total do you, did you publish? We. Now I don't even remember exactly how many, but I think we did about 28. But okay. when I moved, so Panache continued as a zine when I moved to San Francisco. And then when I moved to New York, it, we did one, one last issue. And then, and then since then, I haven't, I haven't done an issue in like almost 10 years. Right. So, I mean, so the bulk of it really is a humble kind of local scene magazine. It's a zine, classic zine in, in the sense of, many um, beautiful American classic punk zines, although it, it, it was it was very specific to the kind of flavor of Humboldt, the humor, this sort of dark, um, sarcastic, downtrodden, uh, yet like super supportive too, because it was like, you know, you were writing, I mean, everyone, there was a lot of contributors too, but they were writing a lot about locals, but uh, but lots of like small indie bands because you would get like records seven inches and stuff mailed to you and yeah I mean we do we would do album reviews but yeah we did have a lot of local contributors and and also I mean if people wrote in and wrote a letter I would I would publish it and right. know, that that got pretty weird and interesting because in Eureka for those who have been there you probably if you have happened to have the luxury of driving through Eureka which you have to if you're on the 101 you have to drive through Eureka because there's no other way. It's not an exit you get off it. You actually physically have to pass through Eureka. And, and so Arcata. You, and, and well, Arcata, you kind of drive, drive over. Oh, right, uh, right. But, yeah, yeah, I guess you drive through the town. Of Eureka. Yeah, but with Eureka, you know, you go through the local mall that I had the luxury of working at. But there's. Where did you work at in the mall? Uh, my first real job was at Orange Julius, <laughs> slinging smoothies. Hey, that's. That's not. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, no. I'm proud. I'm proud about it. It was kind of a punk rock Orange Julius. Lots of uh, punk girls, all women. Yeah. Work there, but you know, like if you go through Eureka, I mean, I have many people that didn't realize I I grew up there, and then they went through there accidentally, and then have some very interesting stories. But you know, it's a it's a very it's a very vibrant place, and uh, and 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 so being growing up there, and then being exposed to so many different things, and then working with a lot of musicians and artists from there. Definitely gave a lot of flair to to the zine, which you know I I'm, I'm still really proud of all those issues. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's a shame that uh, currently you can't really find them online too much. But there was there is like an archaic website that still exists, right? That I mean, not that you have to expose that 
but but at some point in time, would you ever like try to re-release everything or do like some kind of, um, you know, I, I don't know what the right word is for that. But I, I definitely I mean, I have probably one copy each of previous issues and I have thought about having them scan and put online just, you know, for for my own personal sake of, of just having an archive of that in case. You know the the ones I have get water damage or go up in flames or something. You know, and yeah, like, they're all newsprint yeah, zines, right? They're all newsprint. And then I I definitely have. I mean, I I what one thing I want to find. I mean, this is just something I thought about. After, you know, because when you move around to so many different cities, as I've done, you kind of like leave stuff behind. But I definitely have like, you know, boxes of tapes of like of videos and audio tapes that actually might be destroyed from wherever they were stored. And th- those things are of interest to me because I, you know, like so many of so many of those things were just these moments and times that I captured or like photos from all these things. You and, still have them? Well, they they're all like stored at my mom's house, but I oh, think wow. I think a lot of them were damaged by like a uh, like a storm or something. I, I'm not sure. I have to find them. But I mean, the zines. I mean, I think I actually might be missing one copy of one of the issues of the zines. But I got them all too. I can. I, okay, we can between our two collections, we can put them. Up I don't now. get rid of anything. If anyone happens to actually want to read about <laughs> a lot of the those early things, but we did interview bands that were more well known that came through Eureka. I mean, we interviewed the White Stripes and put them on the cover. They right. they played at the Vista for five dollars, and we interviewed the Flaming Lips. Uh, not when they didn't come through Eureka, but we went down to San Francisco to interview them. But 90% of the bands we interviewed came through Eureka. I mean, Neil Hamburger was on the cover. Uh, Lou Barlow. Lou Barlow. Billy Nair Show. Billy Nair Show. Of Montreal was in an issue. Um, yeah, a ton of a ton of bands. A lot of people that I actually still am friends with or work with in some capacity today. And, you know, and it's... But, yeah, there was, there was a lot of, you know, some bigger indie bands. But then a lot of also just weird, you know, really weird stuff. I believe you were on the cover of one of them as a... <laughs> An image of you as a child. Yeah, an image as, of me as a child. It was yeah, it was an honor. It still is. I still have it. Although somehow it's the inkiest uh, copy of any issue. That's like you can't touch it without. Um, but I really left my mark that way. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're when you're publishing something, because you know we would go first they were photocopied, but then eventually I started using a printing pl- press. Was that in where was that based? The that print the printing press we used was in. Uh, it was in um, Willits, which is two hours south of Eureka. But the printing press we used, it was always hit or miss how it came out. And right, the, I remember that. And the issue with a young Peter Augustin on it actually was very, it came out damaged and there was a very inky cover. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. It's a story of my life. It's all good. I think I remember writing an apology. I think I wrote an apology insert that went in all the issues of that zine because of that. We're sorry we made your hands so dirty. Um, well, um, well, for a moment, I'd love to kind of just quickly talk about the bands in Humboldt, too, because I, I do feel like that it plays a big part into how the magazine evolved into the booking agency, which is what people know and love so well now, currently. Um, but I think it wouldn't have really turned into what it is today if it wasn't for this sort of bed of local groups that would both headline a bunch of shows but also would open up you know for the touring acts and really that's where I got my chops as a promoter too because I would you know while you were doing the more left field um, (laughs) and rock stuff and experimental punk shows and stuff like that um, I I was doing hip-hop shows too so we were kind of working in tandem but I was really learning from you the whole time because 
you know, I, I hadn't worked with a booking agent as a promoter until I got to Humboldt too. So, um, so really quickly, let's run down if, or if you can remember some of those uh, groups from Humboldt too, just because they were so instrumental to the, the, the early days of the magazine. Do you know what ones like kind of like come to mind, like that you covered a bunch or that played a lot? I mean, the first one I, we interviewed was the Sin Men, who I think were a very like influential, legendary Eureka band that doesn't exist. You can still find their stuff on LPs and in, in, in some in some places, but yeah, it's great. Hard. Like, um, not necessarily not like indie rock, but I guess there is that the maybe be the you know the the, the closest thing you would. Uh, what I would what would you describe them as? I mean, it's hard, but yeah, definitely like. College rock? Indie, indie, no, not college rock, but kind of like indie, indie rock. Pop. But indie, indie pop, very, a lot of, you know, really like pretty melodies and songs. But, you know, like, I mean, I mean, they were, I mean, great, really like catchy pop songs. But I mean, I feel like I still honestly feel, I mean, after living in so many different cities and working with so many bands, that some of the best music I've been exposed to came, has come from Humboldt. Mm. But unfortunately, a lot of, that music hasn't ever really been exposed outside of Humboldt, you know, but there are a lot of bands that came out of that scene that still exist maybe in new incarnations or in the original form that, you know, I love everything I hear from them, but uh, other bands, the Sin Men were the band that I was first, I think it was a band that I was first exposed to locally when I did the zine. Um, another band that originally was called Audio Rec that my friend Chris was in that became a band called Eureka Garbage Company was, right super influential to me and 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 Chris also was somebody um Chris who's the drummer and sings in the band exposed me to like ELO who is one of my who are one of my favorite bands now and Flaming Lips and you know a very like the Eureka Garbage Company that's their name now like or or like a very weird pop band that I feel like kind of tie a lot of things from ELO and Flaming Lips together right and, and audio Chris from audio rec was what he was in that couch he was in a band called couch that became couch of Eureka and and you know, like, and he was somebody who ended up, he ended up doing a lot of articles for Panache and, and became a big supporter and, you know, an inspiration to me. And he exposed me to a lot of different things and, and bands. But, you know, originally the magazine kind of was Eureka centric, but then we kind right. of expanded out of that to Arcata, which is more of the college town. Right, right. And I think other bands kind of like from Arcata or Arcata and Eureka, The Hitch. Hitch was a great kind yeah. of sludgy, sludgy metal, metal rock band. Metal band, all bearded men. Really heavy. Um, another band was Tiger Bomb. Right. Guided by Voices. So Guided by Voices, ki- uh, cover band, and you know, like, but there were there were a lot of different bands. Um, a band called uh, Automatic Pink. Was yeah, there. I was gonna say Automatic Pink. Strawberry who, Black. S- Strawberry <laughs> Black. I don't really remember as much. <laughs> Maybe that was a personal favorite of yours. But um, Automatic Pink were amazing, and they became a band later that was the monster women monster women yeah right. and uh but a lot of these a lot of these people that became friends of mine through doing the zine and putting on shows still do shows and or in bands or put on shows in eureka right or Arcata, but they're still in bands to this day in in various incarnations um there was another band called the cutters who yeah were kind of like from eureka and Arcata. Yeah, they were pretty huge for a while too yeah. as a local band. Yeah, which was interesting because that that local scene was had its own thing that didn't exist, you know, outside of Humboldt, which has to be indicative of so many other, you know, small towns and areas in America too. So. Well, I think one thing that I have noticed because now I book tours for bands across the country, but 
growing up in a town and putting on shows in a town like Eureka, it was really important to have a strong local band on the bill to get people out. Because even if a band was sort of well-known, you know, like people were more likely to go out if there was a local band on the bill. Right. And, and I, and as a booking agent, like sometimes now I do really think it's important when you're touring to one, have a local band on the bill. Sometimes, you know, if it's a smaller band touring, like for, to kind of get the word of mouth out through that local band's promotion. But then also I think if you're, even if you're a bigger band, it's kind of cool to allow that local band to be exposed to a different audience through opening up for, you know, like your set. And, and so like, trying to support local bands and make sure they're treated fairly and, and help them kind of navigate their way through booking their own shows or like putting them on the bill. Right. It's something that I think is really important that a lot of people don't realize because, but for me growing up in Eureka and booking shows there for five or six years, that was something that I noticed was really like, did really have an impact and an effect and on like sometimes the attendance of the shows, depending on the band that was coming through, but then also, you know, like a band I work with, might play a show because they knew and they would offer to play last local band would play last because they could get people out and then keep people there but then right. also they could then get the opportunity through me if i put on a show with like you know say like of montreal or lou barlow or like bonnie prince billy or you know or someone they would get to open up that show and you know and get to play a cool show with like their idols you know and stuff right. or, or someone that they looked up to and so it was kind of like this cool balance. And I just think that's a really important integral part of like any kind of musical community. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I even met you through a local act personally, because I, um, I think he somehow connected us. But there was a local rapper uh, named Manifest, who I'm still friends with today. And I thought you were going to say Big Moosey. Or... No. <laughs> but no, but, but I remember he I, somehow I think that's how we got connected or... Um, I don't remember. And we don't have to like, you know, go too deep on the local stuff because so many people know you for so much other stuff too. And I, I want to get to the meat can we, of... Can we talk about Bummerfest though? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Bummerfest was a festival that uh, a local um, sort of music and alternative art uh, punk uh, festival and a vet's hall that you booked. I'll let you describe it. But but I want to preface this by saying that it was sort of like the, the antithesis of this more kind of like um, metal fest called Summerfest that was in town, right? Yeah, so me and a few friends from this another event space and promoter company called Placebo decided to put on an event called Bummerfest that was kind of a movement that was a reaction to an event called Summerfest that would happen in in Eureka and and this Summerfest event. Yeah, I mean it was it was a weird event where you know like they I don't know, they kind of alienated a lot of local bands and didn't really support them. And, you know, they they would have like a local female band play, but they would have the band play before the bikini contest, you know, and like and stuff like that. So as a reaction to that, we decided on the same day as Summerfest to put on an event called Bummerfest, but it would be completely opposite. We wouldn't have it in an outdoor environment in the sun. We would do it in a basement, which happened to be a vet's hall basement. We would make sure it was cold. <laughs> we actually did turn up the AC and then turn on <laughs> fog machines and covered the walls in tinfoil because it just looked cool. But we started booking a lot of local bands and then out of town bands at this event and having it kind of be like a weird freak show carnival. Right. Um, to create something for all the local bands that were getting dismissed by this uh, festival that, you know, had originally kind of started to maybe kind of embrace 
you know, what Humboldt was or whatever. Like, and I mean, and, and Humboldt and the scene there is so small that something like this did kind of make a difference and have an impact or was something that people noticed, you know, but it was cool because through doing Bummerfest, I, I, I learned a lot as a promoter and, you know, we got to bring other bigger bands to town and also get to really develop the weird, like, sort of like festival environment or like kind right. of like carnival setting. You know, we had a, we had a Bummerfest clown. We had $5 haircuts. We had a raffle and a lot of that stuff. I feel like if I look at my life now and what I do has been, you know, like, you know, I think a lot of the things I did back then, I still directly implement now, which is interesting oh, yeah. to think you, about. That formula you've used in, in, in alternative places like since then in South by Southwest, the Bruise Cruise, you know, the uh, um, CMJ. But Bummerfest really was kind of laid the groundwork for that. But I will make one quick point is that there is one and one and only artist that played both Summerfest and Bummerfest. And that would be that's me. So I just want to let that be Thanks, known. Thanksgiving Brown. As Thanksgiving Brown, I played. I was able to play both because I, um, you know, made sure that I, you know, those are both sides of that 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 community were friends of mine. So. Did you get any hate mail because you did that? Because I got a lot of hate mail because we started Bummerfest. I, I don't remember. It was a long time ago. I don't think I got any hate mail, um, but um, you know, I did play pretty early in the day, so. <laughs> I think there was a rapper named uh, Garth yeah. Garth Vader that was from Humboldt that played Summerfest who got very upset with me doing Bummerfest and he wrote a whole rap about Panache, but I think he called it Poo Nasty. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> at that time everyone was young. He's still an active, uh, you know, a performer in Humboldt. Um, I think at that time too, like, you know, everyone was kind of young and maybe, you know, everyone sort of had their own, you know, when you're 20 years old. But these sort of things were things that kind of made it fun and exciting. Absolutely. You know, like in that town, because it was like small town dramas and a lot of that stuff was captured in Panache in a very like entertaining, charming way. Yeah, very innocent. And it's like two different worlds. I mean, you take the kind of weed culture and the metal bands and the hip hop stuff uh, locally. Uh, and then, of course, like the freaks and the weirdos that play like, you know, that go to captured by robots uh, shows and stuff, you know, uh, they're just completely different. It's like high school. Yeah, we, you know? I mean, I remember we interviewed, a, I think, a metal band called Defa Creation, and we interviewed them at the local mall, and then nice. and then took them behind the mall to some railroad tracks where there was actually some like weird sacrificial ground that people would go to and like graffiti walls and <laughs> and do a rituals. But yeah, I got. I mean, it was definitely like some weird some weird stuff in in those. In those in those days, so um, you eventually though uh, would you moved to San Francisco. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out a good way to transition it because you were only in San Francisco. F like there was definitely a period of time because we sort of both moved away from Humboldt at, around the same time. Um, eventually, I would graduate from you know I was there for college uh, at Humboldt State. I know I said that earlier, uh, which I love and I love that school and I, and I I I lived in Humboldt for five years so. Um, and, uh, but I moved to New York and then you had moved to San Francisco and eventually sort of would make your way to New York. Uh, I'm trying to figure out a good segue into how, uh, you know, you had, at, by that time you had booked so many shows locally. You were, you were literally the Bill Graham of, of Humboldt, um, uh, that, uh, that it was, you know, Obviously, a move to San Francisco made a lot of sense in one regard, 
Um, but but you started booking sh for shows for people outside of Humboldt too, like taking bands that you had uh, developed a history with and started doing shows out at uh, booking them, you know, in other towns and cities. So what was the very first, uh, what were some of those first experiences of booking and, and what were those bands where that of you actually literally booking shows outside of Humboldt for the first time? Do you remember? Yeah. I mean, I, I think <clears throat> I moved to San Francisco and kind of didn't expect anyone to really need somebody from like a small town girl from Eureka to book them shows in San Francisco. But then I realized a few months in that a lot of people that I had met in Eureka and put on shows for actually had developed like trust and, you know, relationship with me. So they sure. hit me up about booking shows with them. And that, you know, was, was cool, but like surprising to me for whatever reason, I had low expectations of what was going to happen when I moved to San Francisco. But so a couple different bands that I had met when I lived in Eureka, asked me to book tours for them. Uh, uh, the bands, the initial bands were um, a band from San Francisco called the Shantigs, who mm. I booked at the Vista and they were in a, a bunch of issues and I'd gotten to know them really well. And then another band named Shellshag, but I'd originally met, originally met them as Kung Fu USA and they had come through Eureka a bunch. And, uh, and some of these bands, you know, decided, oh, I want to go on tour. And they knew that through kind of doing the zine and, and booking shows, I kind of had all these contacts in all these cities and they were like, well, you know, you can connect all these dots from like, if we want to go from Seattle to Portland to San Francisco to LA. And so I kind of got into the booking game through these bands from the Bay Area, kind of having faith in me. Did you already that. have the contact, the promoter contacts? No, but I mean, the amazing thing about if, you know, like you want to know something, you just put, put that question out there in right. the world. I mean, this is predating like, Facebook or Twitter, but you know, this is it didn't predate Friendster though. That Friendster, no, I feel was, like, yeah, Friendster was definitely happening, but you wouldn't. I don't think I ever used Friendster to help me book a show, but you obviously had a network with the magazine, too. yeah. I mean, I had literally had a Rolodex, I think I had index cards with contacts on it. And you know, like back then when right. you're booking shows, you're writing things in a notebook, you know, and right? Like, and it was still in the days where you book a tour for somebody and people wouldn't know that a show was canceled until they physically got to the venue because people wouldn't update their website and they wouldn't answer the phone. Right. You know, like I booked some crazy tours back then, but these bands like, you know, the Shantigs and Shellshag had, you know, like faith in me to do these things. And I mean, and Shellshag definitely were the band that like kind of helped me develop my wings or whatever so I could do other stuff. But because when I moved to San Francisco, I was working a job. You know, I was. Working, I remember I went. Yeah, I was working in a shoe store slinging uh, instead of smoothies or, you know, whatever I did in Eureka, I was um, selling. Nikes. Yeah, retro sneakers. I think um, I bought a pair. At this shoe store called Subterranean. But that shoe store definitely influenced a lot of my life because there was this whole, like, underground artist culture that, you know, was there. It was a place where, like, skaters and, like, a lot of different artists would go and musicians would go and hang out. And I worked there for a year when I first moved to San Francisco when I was 21. And in that year, I met so many people that are still, like, friends in my life to this day. I'm godmother to one of the guys that I worked with there and then lived with John John my friend John I'm shout out to John Constantino John, John Constantino great band telecommunications shout out to my godson Jude who was and in, Benji and who was the uh, John's partner in telecommunications uh, my friend Newman his real name is Jeremiah who actually lives in Elena and he has a what's his band now he's got some music stuff going on right now I actually don't know what his yeah. do you know what his band name is now I don't but now I feel embarrassed because we're both <laughs> recorded saying that so <laughs> But shouts to him because he's mad, he's cool he's cool and mad cool both of them yeah they're they're I mean all the but I met all these people in this they're all great like and and especially those two 
John and Newman, but but I met all these people when I worked at the shoe store, and and they kind of helped develop a community of people that we'll probably get into later that helped to you know influence where I went next. But when I was working at that job, as something's some things do happen in life. Like that job ended because the shoe store shut down. Right. And I ended up not really knowing what I was going to do, but then kind of decided to try to go into booking because I was booking tours while I was working there. And I mean, I've always been booking tours or doing a zine while I was working another, you know, other job to, you know, pay the bills, sustain myself. But so in that moment in time, I ended up getting an opportunity from my friends in that band Shellshag where they hired me to book them for an entire year of touring. And how did, well, how did that come about exactly? Well, what they, do you mean like they hired you for a year? They're like, hey, we want to tour all year round. Like, can you do this or how to work? Exactly that. I mean, they knew me from Eureka. I'd become friends with them in San Francisco. They tried to help me find a place to live when I moved to San Francisco. They were just, you know, they became like kind of like my rock and roll parents when I moved to the Bay Area. And when I was losing this job, they were like, well, you know, we kind of want a tour and we want you to book the tour. And I'd already been booking a couple tours, but they kind of gave me this job of booking them literally for an entire year. They wanted a tour the entire year. That's a long tour. Yeah, and I'd never really done any extensive booking. And I had friends, you know, and you know, when I was booking shows in Eureka, I worked with booking agents and booking agencies. And so some of these people would help young me with contacts. Right. Do you, uh, really quickly, um, do you, what were the booking agencies that you remember working with at that time? The main one was this agency called Quirk that no longer exists, the Quirk Agency. But one of the guys from the agency, this guy named Eric, right, who lives in Houston now, who still books a band called Of Montreal. Who, he has an agency called Uncle Booking currently. Right? Yeah, Uncle Booking in, in Houston. And they work with Of Montreal and a lot of other great bands. But Eric, I'd been booking shows with since I was 18. And when I moved to San Francisco and started doing my own thing, he kind of gave me a lot of good advice and helped me with contacts. And, and so I kind of like connected the dots of a year-long tour for Shellshag. Right. And it ended up being more like a nine-month tour, but they played in New York. I remember this. They wanted to be in New York for a month. I booked them 17 shows in 21 <laughs> days. Whoa. Which is insane to think about. Like, And I flew to New York. I'd never been in New York before. I flew to New York for my first time and went to probably all 17 of those shows. I wouldn't recommend anyone playing 17 times in New York in 21 days now. But when we did no. it then, it was amazing. I mean, a lot of places that no longer exist, but like, you know, they was this, 2004 or something or five? This this is like 2005. Right. Yeah. And uh, they, 2004, 2000, yeah, more, maybe, actually maybe more like 2003, 2004. Right. But around that time, you know, but uh, we worked with a lot of different people, including like Todd P, who I worked with for many years after that. But, we, you know, they played underground bars, like weird you know, like restaurants and, you know, they played a bar called Siberia and they met, that's where I met like a Conan and O'Brien impersonator named Clonan and, you know, <laughs> which she was later interviewed in Panache, you know, in the zine. But I definitely kind of had my booking boot camp through working with them. And when I started working with them, I also started working with a Japanese band named DMBQ who booked a Japanese tour for Shell Shag all over Japan and, and then the band invited me to go with them to Japan. So at the end of the year, it all kind of culminated in Japan. It was the first time I'd ever been out of the country at like 20, nice. 22 or 21. And and it was just an amazing experience all around. But I mean, I yeah, it was definitely like insane to book nine months of shows in a year for somebody when you don't really know what you're doing and you're figuring it out. No, and, and you would later end up, I mean, you've done that later for other groups that were, because you definitely handled some super heavy touring acts that were like okay we want to play play like and that's sort of like that that 
Black Flag kind of paved the way for that, where it's just like you just fucking play like every day, or you just drive ten hours like to the next show. Not that that's recommended as far as a booking engine goes for routing wise, but but uh, you know that are, you just play wherever you can play. You know. Yeah, and back then it was a different thing. Where it was, right. it was it was predating like people being exposed to things online, and so if you really wanted to have like nowadays, it's like if you 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 can develop a fan base without even leaving your kitchen or bedroom. Right. But back then, if you wanted to develop a fan base, you had to physically go to them and play in front of them. And then you'd want to go back and play in front of them again two months later and then four right. months later. And that's kind of how you developed a, like a community of people that cared about your band. And so, you know, that kind of grassroots approach of booking people that actively really did work and it was the best way to expose yourself to people back then. I mean, it's, it's different now. I mean, touring is such a huge integral element of how bands reach audiences now but it's a different level of exposure yeah it doesn't really work that the way it did um 10 years ago you know or 12 15 years ago yeah that sort of like crazy mm-hmm. grueling touring road schedule isn't as necessary now which is you know is, is great it makes it a little easier and stuff but the but because of that what makes it harder is that you're overly exposed to way too much stuff Right, so it's so a group can't really um, establish themselves unless they follow a certain model. You know, it's a little more commodified where a shell shag style group or like Plesiosaur or some of the groups of that era too, um, um, or Big A, Little A, The Apes, like some of your early, the early Panache stuff. You can't look at my notes. Um, you know, that would... Uh, um, Develop history by playing uh, every, you know, three, four, six months over and over and over. Well, I mean, a perfect example is I grew up in Eureka, put on shows in Eureka. There were certain bands from San Francisco that would go to Eureka and play six times out of a year. And they would draw 200 or 300 people in Eureka because they built that fan base. Like the Coach Whips would probably be a good example of that. Yeah, like the Coach Whips, which is the band that John Dwyer of the OCs now was in before he was in the OCs or before he was in OCS or the OCs. Coach Chips came after his other band, Pink and Brown. But yeah, that's I met John in Pink and Brown, but then kind of really got to know him when he was in the Coach Whips. But yeah, they would come up to Eureka a lot. And they would, and as a local promoter and, you know, like kid that had space, I would put these bands up in my house too. So Right, like, that's true. So many bands, like hundreds of bands have stayed with me over the years. And that was another thing I remember from Humble too, is bands, you know, that was, you know, sleeping at, at people's houses and stuff. It's not... It doesn't happen as much, but bands still sleep at your house, though, right? Like now, uh, very not as much. very few bands sleep in my house right. nowadays. But for I mean, up until recently, yes, a lot of bands still stay at my house. But I still extend I still extend that hospitality to bands. But back then, I mean, and also when you're like, I mean, I remember being sixteen and a band called the Criminals were staying at my right. house, a band from Berkeley, San Francisco, and this is in Eureka. But, you know, like, I lived with my mom, but I kind of lived in a house, an empty house, because my mom worked a lot. She worked the night shift as a nurse and was always at her, like, boyfriend's mm-hmm. house. So I kind of lived for the last three years of my time in Humboldt from, like, or my time as a as a teenager, like, for, from 15 to 17, I lived in a pretty much empty house. And bands would stay at the house, and she was okay with that, but it was it was funny because... A lot of bands would stay there and actually think that it was my apartment and that I lived alone. And then the cat was out of the bag when they would like look at my my so-called life videotapes on the wall or like, <laughs> you know, and stuff. Yeah. But I mean, I, I never was really like hiding that fact, but it was just funny because, you know, my mom, without really realizing it, also housed a lot of bands. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so at what point um, 
did you come, you know, I, I mean, I kind of know the answer to this question because when you moved to New York, obviously, or when did you get to the point where you knew that, like, you know, it's time to, like, leave San Francisco and come to New York? Because that was obviously a big turning point for you just in your life. But, but obviously for Panache, it sort of solidified it a little bit more as an agency, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, when I was living in San Francisco, I was working out of my house by myself and booking tours incessantly. And I, I after I lost the job at the shoe store, I didn't, I had, that was like my last real job, you know, like for somebody else was when I was like 21. But then when I started, so I started booking tours and, and did that like, you know, full time and was working all the time. But I, um, four years into living in San Francisco, I decided I wanted to move to New York. But it was, it was kind of just a thing where I wanted a change of pace, a different environment. San Francisco was an amazing city to live in, but, you know, kind of in some weird ways felt similar to Eureka, like, you know, with this, you know, it's like a smaller infrastructure of a community. And, and I kind of wanted to be challenged a little more. And, and one, of the, one of the group of friends that I met through working at that shoe store um, were also in this band called The Mall. Right. And uh, those early Panache band, early Panache band, this band called The Mall from the Bay Area, and they were all deciding to, they were all like deciding they wanted to move to New York, and I was, you know, things in my life were changing, and I was getting out of like a serious relationship, and I kind of had the opportunity to move, and I decided to make that plunge and and move to New York, you know, with these guys, and one of the guys didn't have someone to live with, and so we became roommates, and that made it a lot easier to make that migration 3,000 miles across the country and, and this was yeah this was 10 years ago I was 24 and so I made that big I made that big I made that big leap and uh and it was yeah it was exciting but I I don't know if I would have done that if I hadn't met those guys and they kind of like encouraged me to do that right no I remember that I remember that time it's kind of coming back to me yeah I mean I remember when you came to New York because actually on a visit you stayed uh you and the guys in the mall stayed at my house uh, um, and at that time, you like checked your email, and uh, through that, they were like, "Oh yeah, the knitting factory is looking for somebody. They're trying to hire somebody." And that random email, um, you forwarded it to me, and then I, I went in. I, I wrote them. I went in. I got a job interview. I got hired for it, and then you know I was there at that club for um, you know two and a half years as a talent buyer there, which I now come to realize I talk about that in I think every single episode of this uh, podcast, which is. Trying to phase out of that like a little, but but nevertheless, it was a you know a um, a critical kind of change for me job wise too because I I moved to New York to do my record label, and the di- distribution company went bankrupt, went belly up. I was uh, I needed a job. I was working at Reup Magazine. I don't know if you remember that, but I was hustling hard, working for a commission, you know, selling ads and writing cover stories. So. Um, uh, that job fell on my lap because you happened to be at the kitchen table checking your email. I went in there, got the job, um, and we had, you know, sort of started working. Uh, I think you moved to New York shortly after that. But now, fast forward a little bit, you know, the Knitting Factory closed at the end of, um, in December of 2008, essentially. And then I hit you up and I'm like, listen, I think, you know, I'd like to try working as a booking agent now. I- I've experienced a lot of uh, dealings with booking agents on, on this level as well as as an independent promoter so then I you were gracious enough to you know I think after some consideration uh, let me come come aboard <clears throat> after I, I tour managed a tour for a couple of months 
with themselves, uh, good friends of mine, and that was a great experience in the spring of 2009. And then, uh, you know, because I was able to meet and see all these uh, talent buyers and promoters face to face, like on a national tour. And then I started working as an agent out of that. Um, and that's when I started coming here. Or, you know, I say here because where we're doing the interview actually is not that far from uh, where your old office used to be. Um, so the point I'm trying to make, I don't know if I'm trying to make a point, but I want to, you know, kind of talk about the early days of Panache in New York because it's sort of the almost the third wave. You've had like, I'd say maybe five waves <laughs> of Panache as a as an entity, you know. Um, do you remember uh, just in a nutshell what what that was like moving to new york kind of starting what was the roster at that time who were the artists and stuff like that um i mean moving to new york uh definitely was one of the craziest things i did i think i did you know i did it alone i mean like i moved with a friend but panache as a agency was a company that i operated on my own and you know at the time like shell shag was still on the roster i um started working with a New York band called Big A Little A from Brooklyn who were playing a lot and very like, you know, relevant at that time of what was going on in 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 the scene in, in New York. Um, they were playing a lot of Todd P shows with bands like These Are Powers and um and uh Matt and Kim and a lot of these different bands and and like I remember when I moved to New York, I had met them at a CMJ festival and I think we started talking and I ended up working with them and that and that definitely impacted a lot of what I ended up getting involved in in, in New York. But then making that move to, to Brooklyn allowed me to really develop the agency because I had already started putting on showcases at South by Southwest kind of as a one person entity. But then when I was there, I met somebody who became a friend of mine and then became my first intern, this guy named Jesse Hodges, yes. who worked at South by Southwest and he you know, really loved all the bands I booked, you know, and had really helped me get my foot in the door with South by Southwest. And so when I moved to New York, he was like, I really want to work with you and I'll start as an intern and I want to be an agent. And so he became my first intern. Yes, I remember. And then he became my first employee, my first agent. And and when you have somebody else helping you, that like collaborative effort really does make a vast difference in what you can accomplish. And Jesse was kind of like my first venture into that door of being able to do more and I, and I feel like when I moved to New York I was actually really surprised because people had always told me oh like New York's cold and people are like not very like receptive to like you know being like helpful and and you know people are mean and angry but when I moved here I mean I guess I had friends here and a lot of people were making that move from California to New York but I felt like there was this very welcoming community of people that wanted to collaborate and do shows together. Well, people love working with you. That's one thing. That's for sure. But Well, that's nice to hear. But I, I definitely had a very receptive audience of people that were stoked that I was here and wanted to collaborate on events. And so having an employee, you know, that led to other employees. Right. And also like a bunch of people that had really awesome, you know, really creative, innovative ideas who, you know, felt like they went through with those ideas. There was a follow through to it, which is something that... I kind of, for whatever reason, found lacking in the Bay Area, but that helped me really grow Panache into, I think, what it's become, and, and you know, and 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 you know, really like help set the pace of of me, you know, being inspired and working harder, and, and like, and developing, you know, all the people that I work with today, and and everything that we represent as a whole. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm definitely thinking that we should do do like a part two okay. of this, just so because I don't want to rush That's through fine. all this stuff because there's a can lot you do of. Can do it in the next two days. Yeah, yeah, okay. I can do well, it in we'll the next two out. days. See, 
Yeah, we obviously have so much more to talk about. So we left it right there and picked it up the next day back in Greenpoint in Brooklyn and talked a bunch more about the next sort of phase of panache in New York and the move to L.A. And we talked a lot about the uh, different groups that Michelle's worked with and the conversation got heavy. Um, the conversation went as it does when, whenever you're talking to a, an old friend, a close friend. And that's what I really feel like this one was. Um, and I definitely um, appreciated the, the time that Michelle was able to give me uh, so we, we could do such a long conversation. Um, funny enough, I just uh, uh, now I'm recording this outro on my phone because I just ran out of space on my damn mic thing and uh, I'm like not I'm not home I'm in Virginia I'm at my parents house for the holidays a uh, couple days and then I'll be back so just classic houseless shit you know but hey that's not gonna stop us it hasn't stopped us uh since uh, up to this point and we will continue on well into uh the coming year and beyond so I wanted to say I appreciate you guys for sticking with me this is our 14th episode. If it is your first time checking it out, especially if you're a friend or a fan of Michelle Cables, then, you know, feel free to pass it along to someone else. Let them be like, yo, you should check this out, man. That house list. You ever been on a house list? Well, you need to get up on this house list. Oh, they said their guest list is closed. Oh, we submitted our guest list a long time ago. You're not going to be able to get in. Then you just say, listen, check this out, man. I'm on Peter Augustine's house list. And then, oh, boom, bang, there you are, in there, on it, listening to any of the 14 episodes we've had up to this point. Um, so, listen, I hope that you guys had a good, great holiday season, a safe and happy, prosperous new year to come. Um, I appreciate everything as far as you guys tuning in. I want to, again, send much thanks and gratitude to CJ Stewart for doing all the editing and engineering of these and just being an old, great old friend who I've known since the days that I met Michelle Cable. I have a lot of love and great adulation for my friends and my time uh, when I was living in Humboldt. I lived in Arcata, California for five years. It's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful uh, area that I have a lot of great memories from and really kind of uh, started my label there. I started really booking shows there, a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, I got a degree in journalism from Humboldt State University there and uh, made a lot of lasting friendships. Um, I was one of the very few people from the East Coast there. So yeah, it was a great time and Michelle was a big part of that. So I want to thank her again. And um, listen, you guys tune in the first Wednesday of this coming year in 2017. I'm going to come back with an all new season of The House List, premiering with another great conversation with Michelle Cable. You can please subscribe on iTunes. You can also catch on the Stitcher app or SoundCloud if you need alternatives to that. Otherwise, um, I just want to tell you guys to that I love you and I appreciate everything. Very grateful and have a lot of gratitude that I want to express to everybody. So, yes, thank you. 
and be safe and take care of y'all. All right, I'm out of here.